Ladies and gentlemen, it is June 16th, 2022. I am Matt Belinsky. This is your weekly dose of sanity, the prevailing narrative. And so the issue that I think needs some sanity brought to it, the conversation around gun control, gun violence, and mass shootings. Recent horrifying incidents in Uvalde, Texas, Buffalo, New York, really tugged at the nation's heartstrings and brought this conversation front and center. And regardless of what anyone may think in response to some tragic incidents that, hey, these things happen, but of course, this is going to spark a national conversation and and bring the situation to ahead over one, how do these things happen? And two, what can be done to address them? I have shied away from addressing these topics so far in this podcast, at least in detail, because I want to have the right conversation. There's a gentleman that I'll be interviewing on this episode. His name is Wilford Riley. He is a professor at Kentucky State University. He's a public intellectual. He's written for such publications as Newsweek, Tablet Magazine, Commentary, a bunch of others, City Journal. He's done amazing work. I found him to be a really interesting commentator on a host of issues, but also did you know really interesting work. Uh, not necessarily work that I agree with 100% on the gun issue and the gun control issue. And this was someone that I felt was looking at the situation from a number of different angles and looking at it in his his most empiric sense possible. And that's why I really liked having this conversation with Wilford. And, you know, he's looking at it from the perspective of, okay, in determining the extent of our gun violence problem, are we using the right comps? Are, Are the way that the politicians and the media and those discussing gun control talking about the various firearms, is that realistic? Because in in this day and age, a lot of times uh, the way that public commentators or the public conversation gets swamped with pure, I hate to use the term misinformation, but falsehoods, right? That people throw around lingo and and kind of focus in one respect on an issue in a way that may make people feel good or may make people feel like they are being productive on the issue, but really do not accurately reflect what's going on. And I think he's able to kind of sift through that and really synthesize things from a pretty broad perspective. And as you'll hear, you know, he's generally a, a you know pro-gun advocate, somewhat skeptical of gun control, but certainly not dogmatic about it. You know, there was a, the, the only major federal policy advancement here was a, a gun bill put forth by some Senate Democrats, which seems to be getting some support right now. And Wilford and I both agree, you know, we both are very generally in support of that legislation and the principles espoused in that policy. So um, a conversation that kind of acknowledges the the many different sides of this debate um, and certainly is not dismissive of guns nor dismissive of gun control. That's the conversation that I've been wanting to have. And I think that we have it with Wilford uh, this week. And that is coming up in just a bit. But also, you know, we, we need beyond the specific and the more empirical conversation about gun control and gun violence. There's always this line, hey, it's uh, not a gun problem, it's a mental health problem. Or people retorting that this is just uh, all a matter of America's unique gun culture and how do we have so many more guns on the streets in circulation than anywhere else? And that's an, also a consideration, but I think that's a false dichotomy because when we're thinking about this issue of mass shooters, this is a very unique American phenomenon. And when gun gun advocates or those defend, uh, defenders of the Second Amendment do mention that, hey, we've always had a lot of guns, we've only had mass shootings recently, they're not wrong about that. That, right when they use that to completely dismiss the role of guns in these mass shootings, I think that's also not. I think that's a bit of a cheap, manipulative rhetorical trick. So we need we can't we can't be dismissive of one. We can't throw out the baby with the bathwater. But it does beg the question: Why do we have so many people who are desirous, who have the desire and intent to indiscriminately murder innocent individuals? Right to the the fact that someone could even want to go into an elementary school and start murdering children, while the guns do provide some of the means for that result, they 
they don't provide the intent. This has to start with a person who is so dark, who is so lost, who's turned to nihilism, who wants to go ahead and, and has the intent to go and inflict that harm on society and innocent individuals in the Uvalde, Texas uh, uh, case on innocent children. And that's something that we need to be, uh, be looking at as well. And there was one piece that I thought was particularly good. It's actually been getting a lot of love and a lot of traction on Twitter. There's a writer named Catherine D. I think she's on Twitter under the handle Default Friend, and she's an interesting cultural commentator. And she wrote a, a, a piece called Mass Shootings in the World Liberalism Made. The debate over more or less gun control completely misses the horrifying heart of the matter. The modern world breeds the nihilism behind mass shootings. And so when she's saying liberalism, she doesn't mean political liberalism and blaming, quote unquote, the libs, right? She's saying that liberalism over, you know, the liberalization of modern society and enhancement of individual, let's call, I don't want to say individual freedom, but individual independence and us really siloing into our own worlds that she believes has created a, a, a lot of people thrive in that environment, but a lot of people also slip through the cracks and turn to nihilism. And so how does Catherine describe nihilism? She seems to describe it as a stripping away of all meaning and all belief that these killers, they believe society and modernity and the life that they're in, the world that they're encountering has no meaning and thus can be stripped away. And this life becomes meaning because society has no meaning. Life becomes meaningless. Thus, there's no there's no consequence and there's nothing wrong with going and ending life. And that's what th that is both a cause and effect of these people turning to nihilism and murder. So how does she describe the problem generally? The explanations offered by journalists and politicians are always the same. Online radicalization, video games, white supremacy, loneliness, fatherlessness, lack of community. The left demands stricter gun control and red flag laws. The right, fearful the left may prevail, insists that the real issue is our mental health epidemic. The result, we hear, of all those antidepressants and antipsychotics being prescribed to fatherless young men, and that the solution is to arm school teachers and hire more on-campus cops. And I think, as you'll see, you know, the way that she's framing that is that dichotomy that is once again a false dichotomy, that each side is trying to essentially uh, uh, deflect blame for anything that they, their political faction might have to do with the problem, and everybody seems to be missing the point. As she goes on, influencers on both sides of the divide greatly exacerbate things by hammering every calamity into their preferred tool of choice, which boils down to fewer guns or more guns, right? So it's like everyone says, okay, the problem, we either need more guns so the good, you know, uh, the good guys with the guns can stop bad guys with guns, or we need less guns because, oh my God, America has 10 times as many guns as anywhere else on earth. And we have so much gun violence and we live in this crazy outlaw society, right? But neither of those are, it's not, it's not that simple in either direction. She goes on, but do you know what's more outrageous than failing to implement mandatory gun buybacks or school shooters not being stopped in their tracks by social studies, by social studies teachers packing heat? The cloying insistent by public figures and talking heads on fitting these incidents into self-serving click generating narratives, right? So everybody's trying to stick the problem into their own super simplistic headline, right? But that looks, forgets that if you go look into the individuals who turn out to be mass shooters, there's kind of an eerie consistency that a lot of these people seem to have fairly well-developed philosophies on why they're killers, on why they're justifiable. Like these are not, you know, the Uvalde, Texas killer, he seemed to be just kind of a, a societal reject, right? He was holding up, you know, dead pictures of cats on the internet and things of that nature. But for instance, Adam Lanza, the Sandy Hook shooter, he had an entire YouTube channel essentially explaining his philosophy, right? He had content out there talking about his existential angst and is simply not necessarily in a whiny matter, uh, his philosophy on why society was meaningless and thus, you know, you needed to inflict some harm upon society in that matter, on how the system needed to be torn down, on how there is no meaning, right? So Eric Harris, one of the Columbine shooters, was heavily influenced by Nietzsche. So you see how a person is not really handling modern society very well, but they have a certain level of intelligence and they turn to these philosophies 
philosophies to kind of explain their not, their depression, right? They explain their meaningless to themselves, and thus they use that to justify horrific, horrific acts. James Holmes, the shooter in Aurora, Colorado, went into the movie theater that was playing Batman, I guess, and murdered 12 people. I mean, he had a neuroscience degree. You keep on looking back through these incidents. The Unabomber was a superhuman genius. I mean, he graduated from Harvard at like 16. And you see that these people, I mean, to a certain extent, someone could look at it and say, well, a certain level of intelligence, it can almost drive a person crazy. So apparently there was a blogger who went through every video on Adam Lanza's YouTube channel and kind of analyzed his message and his philosophy to really start to search for what was the kernel, what really sparked this nihilistic, out, uh, this nihilistic outlook that led to Adam Lanza to go and shoot a bunch of kids. So in an essay, Blithering Genius describes Lanza's philosophy as the rejection of culture. Lanza, he writes, thought of culture as a delusion, as a disease. He hypothesizes that Lanza targeted schools because that is where, in his thinking at least, our culture, our values is tra transmitted. More to the point, he killed children because they represent the propagation of life. He couldn't have viewed murder as harmful, at least not philosophically, Blithering Genius writes. This is very much evidence of a nihilistic philosophy, right? People who believe the world, life has absolutely no meaning and they, they act on their worst impulses and they want to take their hate and their pain out on others, okay? So this is something that seems to be happening more in America than in other places. So even places that have a lot of gun violence, a lot of handgun violence, um, as we'll get into Wilford, you know, that makes up the majority of violence in America as well. However, these kind of crazy psycho killer mass murder incidents do seem to be happening at a higher rate in the United States and because we keep on producing a, a, a lot more nihilism for some reason. In Catherine D's piece, she seems to believe that this is, to a certain extent, a bit of an outgrowth or an extension of, you know, of non-psychotic society, right? Of the world that the rest of us inhabit and that some of the characteristics of modern life are breeding this type of thing. And she writes, we imagine that these killers have nothing to do with everyone else, that they're like a leper colony apart from the rest of us and every so often one es escapes and spreads his disease. We want to believe that because it makes us feel good. But the reality is the smudge of nihilism's fingerprint stains all things everywhere. She frames it in terms of a numbing out of people in constant states of numbing and distraction that, that the killers aren't able to dive into, that a lot of people are trying to numb their worst instincts, and the, these killers, they simply don't have the capability to do that, and that's why they lash out. It's the commingling of our leisure and our anesthesia. We drink to escape. We exercise until we can't feel anything. We propel ourselves into fantasy lives with fandom. It's even paradoxically in our insistence on living in the moment. Nothing matters, so we might as well be happy where we are. Is that it? Is that the people, because they can't see anything broader than themselves. The darker side of YOLO is how it forecloses on the possibility that our lives matter in any grander sense, that we can be part of a tradition that started long before we were born and will extend for ages after we die. So this point actually resonates quite a bit, uh, is that people in losing a sense of community, in losing a sense of tradition and history, and really li you know living so much for the here and now and for themselves, have lost any attachment to any, you know, I don't want to put this into religious terms, but any attachment to a higher vision and a higher power and when that goes wrong it goes really wrong and so I see her point in that some of the vestiges of modern society that for many of us may you know may, they may lead to the increase in depression the increase in opioids the increase in using psychoactive medication things of that nature to this and a lot of people they they can kind of wad through this haze and and they're living life at less than their full optimization but they don't turn to murder yet the same dynamics that are leading them to leave less than fulfilling lives or kind of living life through 
through some kind of mild despair, they're leading some people to turn to real dark places, and that's what's leading to the Adam Lanzas of the world, the Uvalde killers, and things of that nature. Catherine's piece, she also frames this in terms of narcissism, that self-obsession, that the, the quest for self-actualization that our society seems to be constantly on at all times is really driving a lot of people insane, right? It's why people kind of have this, this glib, self-deprecating humor about how nothing matters anymore, so okay, it doesn't matter that, that their life is spiraling downwards. You see this a lot in some of the meme accounts, and you know, for better or for worse, a lot of the female meme accounts that are about, you know, look at how much of a hot mess I am. Oh my God, my life, I'm always hanging on by a thread. I don't have everything together, but that's what get, that's why my life is such a wild ride, and haha, isn't it funny that, you know, that my life is so chaotic and messy at all times. Maybe, you know, maybe that is derived from narcissism, uh, and maybe that's not the healthiest thing. And of course, we're not trying to equate that with people who go and indiscriminately murder uh, innocent strangers, right? But it, there do, once again, there does seem to be some overlap about the general meaningless and ennui that a lot of people and stagnation that a lot of people are finding in modern life. Um, the way she closes it, the debate over guns or fewer guns completely misses the horrifying heart of the matter. The world built by modern liberalism, which took for its telos the maximization of individual autonomy and this guaranteed total alienation, breeds the nihilism behind these shootings. So in maximization of individual autonomy is leading to alienation. People are not connected. They're not connected to their communities. They're not connected to others. And what, like I said, there's a lot of people who can be functional in that manner. But when when you come across a person who is smart, motivated, and not functional in that environment, we're, we're popping out too many of these people, and that's what's really scary. And it's a concept, and once again, going back back to the false dichotomy of, ooh, do we have a gun problem or a mental health and uh, a mental health, and let's call it a happiness and despair problem, right? It's not a one or the other. Um, if you come with a, a concept called coupling, where one phenomenon or another phenomenon, while separate, uh, are feasible, right? They're not that problematic. But when you match the two phenomenon together at the same time, when they're both present at the same time, that's when things become really problematic and leads to some harmful results, right? So in this case, if we just had a lot of guns, as we used to, it might not be such a problem. If we just had a lot of unhappy people who are getting lost in this kind of excessive alienated narcissism and, and you know, uh, uh, letting the devil creep into their soul, um, that might not be such a problem either. But when you have so many people who have, you know, let's call it nihilistic, narcissistic leanings and so many guns in circulation and such easy access to guns, when you put those two together, it's a lot of trouble. And I think that's what we're seeing in American society right now. So Catherine's piece, it's phenomenal. Go check it out. Coming up in just a moment, you know, this was a little more of a philosophical look at the gun, the gun issue. So this segment was a little bit more of a philosophical, holistic look at the mass shooting phenomenon and the issue. We get into a little bit more of an objective, empirical look at the gun control problem and a host of other topics with Wilfred Riley coming up in just a minute. I think you guys are going to really enjoy it. Please stick around. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm Matt Belinsky. This is The Prevailing Narrative, and one of the objectives of this podcast is to bring you some of the smartest, most insightful public intellectuals and commentators, and I'm here today with one of them named uh, Wilfred Riley. found him on Twitter, and he's always got a very poignant point of view on any number of topics, one that uh, has definitely been on people's minds recently, uh, our mass shootings and gun control. And, you know, it's been a couple weeks since the Uvalde shootings and the Buffalo shootings, and, and you know, Wilfred and I have been trying to have this discussion for a moment, or a minute or two, but one piece that he he released right after the Uvalde shooting, I found particularly interesting, and then the, the meta commentary around it. Uh, it was in Newsweek uh, and titled, We're Not an Outlier, Targeted Solutions Will Make America Safer Than Gun Control. So definitely want to dig into that piece with you. But first off, Wilfred, thank you, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, glad, glad to be on. 
So um, you know, your perspective here, I guess there's two parts and you elaborate on it in the piece. But one, America is not an outlier in terms of gun violence and then targeted solutions. So I'd like to attack that first piece uh, initially. Um, the claim that no, America, despite you know generally high rate, you know, very high rate of gun ownership and seemingly high rate of gun violence is not necessarily an outlier in that regard. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the things that I say are just sort of empirical facts. I mean, me bringing some of this stuff from the political science world into that high end public intellectual space. Um, the USA is definitely not an outlier when it comes to violence or gun violence. I mean, there's a site, uh, the global that you can go to to look at the rankings of different countries. And they've got all kind of things, health spending and outcomes, covid child mortality. But in the North American zone, there's a graphic homicide rate in North America that I'm looking at right now. There are 18 countries and the USA ranked 17th, so second best in terms of murder. I mean, these are pretty civilized countries. I mean, you've got the island paradises like Jamaica. Um, you've got Mexico. You've got Puerto Rico, one of our own territories, Costa Rica. You've got Canada, Bermuda. So all of those countries, except for Canada last year, have higher murder rates than the USA. I mean, and to put our murder rate, we've got a five murders per 100,000 people per year. To put that in context, Jamaica, which is a very pleasant, civilized country, has about 60. They've got a 57. So what you often see with the USA and no excuses for kind of like hood and holler crime in the USA. But what you often see with. America, when this kind of analysis takes place in the totally mainstream media, is that we'll be compared to a set of maybe seven very small, exclusively white, exclusively upper middle income OECD countries like Norway. And people will say things like the USA, obviously, is the outlier on this graphic. So it'll be the seven like Norway murders per 100,000 one. And then there's us at the bottom. And that, that looks wildly uncivilized. But the response is just if you throw any size peer of ours, except maybe China and they're lying on that graph or Russia, Brazil, you're going to see dramatic differences. And this this has very little to do with race, for example, some of the things we obsess about. Russia is virtually all Caucasian. I believe the Caucasus Mountains are in Russia, actually, or one of the nearby countries. <laughs> but I mean, their murder rate is 10 per 100,000. So if you actually take that map of countries globally and break us out, let's see where we fall. Actually, I don't want to wonk out too much on this, but let's just look at all world. Yeah, feel free to wonk out as much as possible. All right. I'm pulling up world right now. Homicides. So we are 32nd. And again, a lot of these countries aren't really reporting data. I mean, so when you go down here and you see that, like, you know, for example, Bosnia says they have one homicide per 100,000 people. So does Guinea, Basu and Africa. Like, I'm not I'm not too sure about that. I mean, among those countries that are accurately reporting data, we're doing pretty well. And again, number one in the world is El Salvador. That's 61.8 murders per 100,000 people. Lord. Yeah. I mean, so the argument that we're number one in the world or number one in our weight class or something, that, that's just not true. You can still say we have too much crime, but then you're getting into an empirical argument like no one denies that crime is bad. So like, well, there are a couple yeah. people out there that seems to maybe not outright deny it, but seems to at least minimize it quite a bit these days. But that's uh, part of part of our conversation. But and, and fair point in terms of, you know, the, the kind of flaw, uh, the, the kind of flawed reasoning or just the outright, you know, inaccuracy of claiming us to be an outlier. But OK. And, and, and how, you know, kind of carving out a certain uh, irrelevant sample size to com as point of comparison. But OK, some people do look at us and say, despite a 70 percent de decrease in the homicide rate since the early 90s, we're still at 
three to four times most of those of Western European countries. Um, obviously, they, they shouldn't necessarily be the only point of comparison. But what what can we trace? What what are the distinguishing factors well, of why our murder rate is so much higher than those countries? I mean, it's important to just be honest about this. I mean, so first of all, like the northern white murder rate in the USA is on par with most mm. of Europe. I mean, so the reason why the USA has a high crime rate is that we're a very we're a gigantic continental, very diverse country. So we have large racial minorities that got nearly to the point of war, ethnic conflict with the majority in the past, where in the black community, there wasn't much policing. So you had to develop an alternative set of legal norms. I mean, you have that in the USA. You don't have that in Norway. I mean, you have a 2000 mile border with a second world country. Yeah. I mean, if if you want to talk about where a fair chunk of crime on the drug side is coming from, so on down the line. So, again, I I think something like Sweden or Norway or Switzerland is an idiotic comparison for the USA. And just getting back to that first point, like the white northern crime rate in the USA is, is on par with Sweden or Switzerland. So when someone says, well, you have a higher crime rate than Swedes in Sweden, the question would be to some extent, well, what's the crime rate for Swedes in America? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it makes no sense to knock, quote unquote, rednecks or young black men or the massive young working class immigrant population that we have off of our step or. Yeah, it, it makes no sense to keep them on our stats and then compare our full. Complex population to the population of Scandinavia, uh, the black the black homicide rate. And again, I mean, there are very high crime rates in regions of Appalachia, many Latino communities. So I, I don't like the idea of blaming one group here. But the black homicide rate is 16 per 100,000. The white rates about two. And that's with Southerners and so on included in the mix. Mm-hmm. So when you ask, well, why is the murder rate elevated relative to Europe? I mean, more than half of it just traces to that. Mm-hmm. That there's a very large minority group here that clashed for hundreds of years with the majority group and has a very high crime rate. There, there's that, no equivalent there in many of these tiny European countries. And there's no equivalent in any kind of upper middle income one race state, by the way. I mean, the mm-hmm. homicide rate in Ghana, which has gotten to the point where they're reporting pretty accurate data, is two per 100,000. Mm-hmm. So to take either Norway or Ghana, population, whatever, population, Texas, and actually substantially less in the Norwegian case and compare that to us, that that's an invalid comparative metric. And it feels like the America's tough to compare. And, and this is why a lot of these comparisons fall so flat. It feels like America's tough to compare to any. You know, we have such a unique experience and a unique population composition. I mean, it, you, it's hard to and particularly in terms of uh, demographics and a legacy um, and heritage of gun ownership and guns in the culture. It's, it's tough to really compare out here. You're, you're going apples to oranges any almost anywhere. But one factor that some people did speculate that was kind of relevant to what you just mentioned is homogeny versus heterogeny and then a more complex complex heterogeneous society might be more prone to gun violence but then you go try to drag that out you know across different regions and some people look at you know, the homogeneous society in Japan and it's very low murder rate but then the central and south american countries that you know kind of fall higher on the list and and you know put us down the list in the northern uh, in the western hemisphere at least um they're all seemingly uh, homogeneous as well is there anything it, it, you know to what extent is that a causal factor or not Yeah. So that's actually a complex and interesting question. And it depends to some extent on what you mean by homogeneity. Mm -hmm. I mean, so Japan is a homogenous society. I mean, virtually everyone there is, as I understand, they're in the long term sense, kind of racial descendants of the Han, the people in China. 
Mm -hmm. Uh, The Japanese people entered those islands hundreds, if not thousands of years ago, displaced the, you know, the Ayanu, the native population, and then have just sort of been there. So Mm -hmm. I, I don't think anyone disputes that. I would overall agree that racial diversity, as opposed to class or kind of language diversity, like how many tribes there are in a country, isn't actually a huge predictor of conflict. Um, I think this is one of the things the quote unquote alt-right gets badly wrong. Uh, Most large countries are, by definition, going to be fairly diverse. Even Canada is simply because they cover a great deal of land. And there are a lot of different types of peoples that happen happen to live in that area. And yeah, so, I mean, the most violent countries, Somalia, El Salvador, so on, aren't what you would think of as incredibly racially mixed. I will say there is some ethnic conflict in those countries, though, between people that see themselves as Indio or Mestizo, like Indian in essence and descent and people that see themselves as descendants of the Spaniards. And there's a lot of income inequality or class conflict, which also ties into violence. Um, But in reality, I don't. So I'll, I'll say something kind of controversial, but fairly obvious here. I don't think that when you adjust for the diversity variables and so on, guns have much of anything to do with our level of violence. And I'm sure some social scientists watching this or grad student will correct that and say, well, American whites are still 30 percent more violent than European whites, with everything in the model or something like this. But the the heaviest gun ownership states are almost invariably places like Montana and South Dakota, and they have very low rates of violence. I mean, those are pretty homogenous areas. Those are areas with a long term hunting culture and so on. Again, the, the northern white homicide rate in the USA just is what it is. So the the simple reality, I mean, at some level, the cause of the very high murder rate in the USA is that among all of the formerly marginal populations I described, and especially black Americans, there's a higher murder rate. Like last year, especially following the quote unquote racial reckoning that came after the killing of George Floyd, which is a disaster for black communities. um, We're in a position where something like 60 percent of all murder victims are black. So if you just removed that from the mix, I don't think you'd be looking at the USA as even being in the position that we're in, which is not in the top 30 in the world in terms mm-hmm. of homicides. So we have a lot of ethnic diversity. We have a lot of income inequality. And we have a very high homicide rate, specifically among black people. And that is that's the cause, to some extent, of the murder rate that we have. There, there's a very low correlation between something like Gun legal gun ownership and homicide rates in a state, especially if you remove the big cities in that state. The correlation's there, but it's not big. Mm-hmm. And I would assume that might be domestic violence, killings, or something like that. But that's not the majority of our murders. I mean, the majority, 80% of gun deaths are gang related and they involve young men of all colors. And again, mm-hmm. half of that pool is specifically African American. And real quick, what your ethnicity? Um, I'm black. Sorry, I was in the gym playing basketball a little bit further. <laughs> no there. Um, I'm black, Irish American, and a little bit Native American Indian. So, very interesting. And Ooh. so, to that point, uh, in, in terms of the levels of gun and ownership not necessarily being correlated with gun violence, but still acknowledging that there's some tail risk to a high proliferation of guns that the Uvalde shooters of the world may more easily um, get access to a gun legally. But uh, you know, your your approach in the Newsweek piece was that gun control is probably not going to be very impactful um, and that there are targeted solutions that uh, address other issues relevant to why such a person would want to step into a school or a buffalo shooter would want to step into a a, mar- uh, a grocery store and gun down innocent people. Um, maybe you could tell, talk a little bit about those targeted solutions and why you think they would work. 
Yeah, so there, there are almost two questions there. The first or two comments there that, I, that I'd unpack a little bit. The first is that what the media has kind of trained SEAL us or tra- trained us to think of as gun violence in the USA as a really small chunk of gun violence. Mm-hmm. So when whenever we have the gun conversation, one of the first things people bring up is, quote unquote, assault rifles or assault weapons, which I, like almost everyone on the right, think is a pretty meaningless term. But that that's the centerpiece of the conversation. People will say something like, well, right wing nut. Do you think that someone should be able to buy a weapon of war and walk into a bakery and open fire? The the answer is, well, no one thinks that part two should be possible and murder is illegal. But, yeah, I I support the, the sale of most rifles to adult taxpayers. But rifles make up an infinitesimal chunk of the gun deaths in the USA. I mean, if you Google something like homicide deaths by type, you find that in a typical year, um, I mean, there are about 200 to 500 people killed by by rifles, by the entire category of firearm. There are usually slightly more people killed by knives. There are usually slightly more people killed by sort of a catch-all category that includes things like bats and just fists and feet. Um, you know, most most deaths in the USA that are murders involve sort of cheap, regular handguns, basic semi-automatics. So the gun control conversation, I don't think centers on something that's especially useful in the sense that if we got rid of all of the high velocity rifles in the country, we'd be saving about 400 lives a year. And if you look at the demographic profile for kind of the purchaser of a fresh new AR-15, I mean, that's generally going to be someone who has some disposable income, who obeys the law, if you look at what you need to buy a gun, much much less that variety of gun, it's going to be someone with little or no criminal record. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm not sure that in the end you'd save lives at all. I mean, those people are mostly going to be home defenders. And they're between, what is it, 0.7 and 4 million crimes a year that are stopped by just sort of a solid dad or mom with a gun. So I saw I saw that claim in your Newsweek piece. I'm wondering what what is the basis for that claim? And once it, this is a claim that legal gun ownership can be, we can attribute uh, saving f- essentially a uh, Four million lives a year to legal gun ownership. What what is the basis for that? Well, it's four million crimes prevented. I mean, there's a great deal of research on this. I'd recommend just looking up John Lott's "More Guns, Less Crime" and then looking mm-hmm. at the response papers dealing with that, like some pro, some con. But mm-hmm. I mean, there's a there's a pretty convincing to me body of research that indicates that areas where there is substantial legal civilian gun ownership have lower rates of crime on average. And to some extent, that's not even surprising. I mean, I live in Frankfurt, the Kentucky capital. And I mean, I've heard people joke that there are parts of town like our classically, quote unquote, redneck neighborhood where you'd have to be insane to try to rob a house. Mm -hmm. I mean, almost everyone in the home would have a gun and they would all come out of their rooms with those weapons. So, I mean, Lot did a series of pretty sophisticated quantitative models looking at this around 2000. He's redone it a couple of times and found exactly this effect that where you have people that are able to defend themselves, you have less crime. And the the point seven to four million figure comes out of the debate that followed that book and some similar books. I, I don't have you know exact citation on the desk mm-hmm. in front of me. And that's crimes prevented, by the way. It's not lives saved. Got so it. I'm, I'm pro gun. But nobody nobody says that there are four million good guys with guns every year. The idea is that if you if you take the burglary rate in neighborhood A and then the burglary rate in comparable neighborhood B, just using a two or three variable model, and the burglary rate in B is 30 percent lower, you can assume that X number of crimes and Y number of violent crimes are prevented. And again, there's quite a lot of solid, real research around this. So, I mean, I I guess my point there, though, is whether or not you ended up 
saving a few lives on the one hand or costing a few on the other, taking the, the long barrel, high velocity rifles away from people that are usually ex-military, often involved with the police, just hunters, people that know what they're doing, it wouldn't do much for gun violence in the USA. I mean, there, there are almost 20,000 homicides a year, and those are mostly kind of young guys bucking away at each other with the pistols you can buy at a pawn shop with very limited vetting for $150. So there, there are ways you could crack down on that. But the focus, the language often leads people on the center right, like myself, to suspect that the overall goal is banning all guns. Because making civilian gun ownership very limited a la Trudeau's Canada, because anyone that's familiar with this issue can't possibly believe that getting rid of rifles would significantly impact the murder numbers. I think the next step would be or getting rid of uh, semi-automatic rifles. I think the next step would be arguing that, you know, handguns are the real tool of mass destruction or something like that. And that's kind of true, but I don't see it as realistic to take the 400 million guns in circulation away from legitimate users. And we'll have more of the prevailing narrative after the break. Now, and that's a fair point in that the the language and the response each time one of these incidents occurs seems to direct all the attention away from handguns, which are uh, responsible for the majority of homicides and towards, um, you know, high capacity rifles and things of that nature. But then that does beg the question that, OK, is there a, a true and demonstrable increase in lethality from certain uh from certain firearms, semi-automatic rifles that may carry uh, uh, larger capacity magazines, shoot larger bullets, and that the amount of damage that can be done, I mean, this is a point that you know we'll get to McConaughey in a second, but McConaughey's speech at the White House, a point made was that the damage done by these guns um, is more significant, you know, each, each, uh, each shot is going to be more damaging than would otherwise uh, be resultant from a handgun, and that there is an interest in preventing that even in the small number of cases where someone does go on a, ma- uh, uh, there, there is a mass uh, killing incident, and that uh, to the extent that we can put some guardrails in place that may make it a little more difficult to access such a, a firearm is worth say the reduction in lethality from even the very random lightning strikes mass murder incident uh, is there any validity to that argument well i personally so first of all i mean i i don't want to go deep into morality and ethics here but i'm not i don't think there's much ultimate right or wrong at all i mean if you sit down with an anthropologist or even a priest they'll tell you there are about 10 or 12 human universals you know, don't fuck your mom, excuse the language, and don't rape tribes women, uh, don't commit cannibalism. There aren't that many things that human beings seem to be hardwired to see as bad. So in most cases, what we're having, and it's important to remember this when you're on Twitter or Facebook, what's happening are good faith debates between two people that both think they're right. Or they I, I think be, this yes. is a classic example of this. But so th- this is all just a lead into what I was going to say. I actually totally disagree with them. Um, I don't think we should, in general, get rid of freedom to secure safety. This is a very old debate. Franklin and Jefferson talked about this with one another. Right. Um, and I think the argument that massively limiting a right to save just one life is a morally good thing could be used to limit virtually every right to a massive, you know, nearly maximal extent. So, I mean, so just to give some examples, we heard this under COVID. I mean, even once it was it was widely understood that the lethality rate for the virus was about 0.4 percent and the average victim was 81. There was an incredible amount of pressure on people to stay home most of the day because you could theoretically 
hurt a senior that wasn't taking care of their own health precautions or something like that. And I found that really unconvincing. Like I was more careful around old people, but I don't think I have a duty to abandon my freedom of movement because you could theoretically unintentionally hurt someone else. You And you saw this argument being made and you saw good faith people disagreeing about it. And you saw it being fairly effective with a lot of people. But you, you could make the same argument with guns. You could make the same argument with cars. You could make the same argument with porn, which certainly has inspired a whole lot of sex. And, for example, high school that one party might not be all that comfortable with. You could make the same argument with liquor. You could make the same argument with abortion. Yeah, but here's the thing. There are there there are restrictions out there. Right. You know. Child porn. Yeah, but but child porn is illegal, right? Um, You cannot. There's a certain there. there, We have we have uh, we have enumerated a threshold above which you should not drive intoxicated. You you can go have a half a glass of wine, and we've determined that you know that will probably fall under the legal limit uh, or the illegal limit. And we 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 have tried society has tried to synthesize where a certain freedom should be impinged on um in order to say you know increase safety to negative externalities and safety sure. to others but so my, like my that, that is part is, of the discussion yeah, my point here though of course yeah and I, I don't think you should be able to buy well actually i personally i don't know but i mean i think most people don't think you should be able to buy warships or cannons or apache helicopters or something like that if we're talking about arms certainly so yes of course there are some limits on rights i, sh- I should probably clarify a little bit from the baseline of what I think of as hypersensitivity that we are at today, I do not think, and I'm not talking only about guns here, but I do not think we need to move further in the direction of limiting freedom to achieve more safety. I mean, from, we just, meaning from where the basis that w- at which we are at right from now. the baselines now. And I'll talk okay. more specifically about guns in a second. I, I think there are a couple things we can do. And I actually just wrote a whole article saying this, so I'm not you know, some inflexible nut on this. But sure. I mean, like we literally just shut down the whole damn country for about six months to protect against a disease with the lethality rate I just gave. I think we're nervous enough. Uh, so in general, I think we need to move back toward freedom. Um, I, I mean, I got a new vehicle the other day and you can't not wear a seatbelt. There's a kind of piercing shriek that starts if you leave the seatbelt unbuckled for 15 seconds. That That's where we are right now. I sure. mean, there are automatic car seat lock-ins in the back in case you feel, and obviously I suppose you not use them, but just in case you feel tempted to let your eight-year-old ride in the front seat. We are a very safety-conscious society right now, and I, I see some problems with that in terms of human development. I mean, as a kid, you can be on your parents' health insurance until you're 27. You- no, no doubt. In terms, you know, we are a society blanketed with safetyism and bureaucracy, and as a general matter, uh, walking that back would would probably be healthy. Um, conversely, I mean, it seems like every situation, you know, does have its own set of unique facts and circumstances, and particularly ones that do carry, um, you know, the the potential of lethal consequences. And I mean, you know, you've also acknowledged, and and you mentioned it on Twitter that we can debate the boundary of red flag laws, legality of involuntary commitment, etc. But come on, there are a fair number of leaders on this page. There has to be a way to stop the guy holding up a bag of dead cats on social media from buying a gun. So in focusing on that, where there are some telltale signs of threatening or dangerous behavior and thus free, we can justify limiting freedom in that regard. You know, what, what are we looking for? How do we how do we codify that into policy and what principles should be informing it? Okay, so a couple different points here. First, I mean, you know, a good technical correction is never unwelcome. So, yeah, in general, I prefer freedom to safetyism. 
am I the full on privatize the fire department sort of libertarian bro? Uh, no, not really. So I, I recognize, of course, you shouldn't be able to make child pornography and sell it at Walgreens or make it at all. Indeed. I mean, you know, so on down the line, of course, you shouldn't be able to drive. Well, again, I don't really have an objection to this, but we have a law saying you can't drive your car at 100 miles an hour. I support drunk driving laws, so on down the line. Uh, point two that relates to that, though, is I think we've gone a long way down the safetyist path and we don't need to go further down it in most cases. So now we get specifically to guns. And the starting point of my article ties into my broad preference for freedom over safetyism. I make the point that there's no chance of us getting rid of guns without prompting something close to a civil war. I mean, there are 500, yeah. 400 to 500 million legally civilian owned firearms in the United States. And almost all of them fall into the categories that people I think of secretly as, well, not secretly, but as gun grabbers who occasionally talk about limiting. Like, as I'm sure you know, a semi-automatic rifle or handgun is just a gun that fires once when you pull back with force on the trigger. That That's almost every gun. Like, I mean, my girlfriend, my fiance now has one of those S&W shields, very effective, sort of the classic businesswoman's handgun. It's like six inches long. That would be banned under many sort of gun restriction proposals because it is a semi-automatic weapon that can take a clip containing more than nine bullets. That's every gun. And I think people that are proposing these things kind of want to sneak that by. It sounds good to say we want to ban semi-automatic weapons of war with a magazine capacity above 10. And you just never mention, well, that's your girlfriend's pistol. It's like saying, don't you favor comprehensive health care for LGBTQ youth without ever mentioning, well, that means castration in some cases once you get past the age of 16. So uh, we're not we're not going to get rid of all the guns. Most of the guns are semi-automatic. 50 million of the guns are rifles. That's that's the starting point. We're not going to do that. It would require a massive national registry as a starting point. It would require spending billions on a buyback as a starting point. We've wasted enough money on dumb shit recently. We don't need to give, you know, every good old boy with a couple ARs $5,000 a piece for some of the plans I'm hearing. I think there are very specific things that could stop specifically mass shootings. Um, one of those, and I get a lot of pushback for this on the right, but one of those is an effective red flag law. And I mean, I like it that you pulled up my tweet, read it to me. If you're active on social media, you've probably seen a picture of this guy literally holding a bag of butchered cats. Like yeah. he took a hatchet, he apparently killed two cats. A crazy son of a bitch. And he was he was not popular. I don't know if that's the word, but he was on these social media apps like Yebo or whatever it's called. He was one of those Channer guys. I mean, there were there were hundreds of people that must have been aware of his cat killing proclivities. This had been record, reported, as I understand, to the educational authorities. But he was still able to walk into a gun store and buy two very nice guns and then 400 rounds of ammunition. So if a guy who's known in town as the local amateur butcher, you know, <laughs> comes in to Al's sporting goods and says, I want to buy two of the closest to illegal that you have. And then 400 rounds, like there's got to be a process. First of all, if I was the store owner, I'd say no. I mean, like there, there are individuals are often responsible for the progression of evil. I mean, the guy who was like, okay, um, you don't want to blame him as a businessman, but it seems like that decision could have been made differently. The cops who were outside the room for an hour, 12 minutes, that decision could have been made differently. So, at any rate, this could have been prevented as it is, but some kind of effective red flag or something like an educational professional who's the school psychologist can report the cat incident. And if you're under, say, if you're under 25, I mean, you can't rent a car in that age range. If you're under mm -hmm. 25, stuff like that is added to your data file when you try to make a buy. Mm -hmm. I mean, virtually every one of these mass shooters is a disturbed young man 
fatherless, under 27, of whatever race, on psych meds. We know the profile, and I, I don't think it would be very difficult to stop mass shootings at all with some basic techniques like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, there are just sort of common sense behaviors that you can engage in that I think would would remove most of the rest of that subset. There are so few mass shootings, even though we've been trained not to think this, that everyone is an outlier event requiring multiple failures, multiple point failure sources, I guess I would say, professionally. So, I mean, in this case, the guy was able to get into a grade school, which you're never supposed to be able to do because one of the teachers left the back door open. Mm-hmm. They were out there doing whatever, maybe having a smoke or they heard about him and they went to go out and look and see if you know there was a madman outside. I'm not sure exactly how you, you wind up with that wide open, but he just walked in. I mean, that, again, simple training would prevent that. The police were there. They were called within minutes. They simply didn't intervene. You can't allow that. Anything from one armed guard in the schools to just making this point over and over two police departments would cut down on the rate of these. But, yeah, red flags, those two suggestions. The final thing that I brought up, by the way, I you notice neither one of us has named the shooter. Uh, one of the points I made was that the news networks need to stop giving these clowns what I would call negative respect as a teacher or a coach. Where every time one of these shootings happens, there's the guy's full picture on television. They're discussing his history. I mean, that's that's how I've seen the cat image. They're discussing how he committed his crime, making him seem like some kind of strategic genius. You know, he noticed the agape door. He entered from the side. I mean, I've seen graphics depicting this on both Fox and MSNBC. Just don't do that. Mention that there's been a shooting. Focus on the names of the victims. Move on. Never name the guy again. And I think sure, that would be in, in our in our kind of broad and fragmented media landscape and communication landscape. Do you think it's necessarily realistic to keep the killer's name out of circulation? I understand that to refrain from some things that might be seen as glorifying it. But I mean, can you ne- necessarily say that simply re- reporting on a tragic incident is inherently glor- it's going to glorify things for crazy people? Right. If you're a crazy person, if you're a violent uh, nihilistic person, you might look at, at, at any of these situations and, oh, Jeffrey Dahmer, look how glamorous that is that he's now, you know, the most uh, the the uh, his name is synonymous with evil. Right. Um, so is there do you think it's realistic uh, to while you can kind of veer away from highlighting the person's identity that the, the names are, is always going to get circulated? There's always going to be some attention drawn and, and some mythology around these people. Well, I think you can minimize it as much as possible. I mean, I, I think that's the answer. So, first of all, I would like to see the media report more on actual patterns in society and focus less on kind of sensationalistic, provocative stories in the first place. So, I mean, the pattern that I'm describing here is something that you see with a lot of other things. Mm -hmm. I mean, something that I drop into probably every second or third article, the Skeptic Research Center, good heterodox think tank, about a year back now, asked a group of mostly urban men, as I recall, but diverse population basically how many unarmed black men they thought were killed in a typical year by the police. And among the standard, very liberal category, not even leftists, just you break it into four bars and this is the left most of them. um, 34 to 35% thought that the number of unarmed brothers that were killed by cops in a typical year was about a thousand. Another 14 to 16% thought that the number of unarmed black men that were killed by police was about 10,000 quote, And 8% thought it was more than that. Now, again, to put this in context, there are only 20,000 murders in a typical bad year. Mm -hmm. Uh, Until very recently, less than half have involved blacks. So the the assumption among the average left-leaning guy, pool of people, 
is that there are as many black men massacred by police in a typical year as there, in fact, are murders of black men, if not men. Um, and this is a result of sensationalism, I think, in large part. They, I think they do this in the paper, but I don't want to exaggerate. I have to check it out. But you could very easily correlate this to a mass media exposure. And I have no doubt that the more you've seen of kind of George Floyd, the horrible video we all saw, or Jacob Blake, um, uh, very different from the George Floyd case, by the way, but him TV editing the knife out of his hand and him getting shot. I mean, like the more you see of these kind of images, I don't want to exaggerate. I don't know if the knife was in his hand. The knife might have been in his car. But at any rate, the more you see of this type of imagery, the more likely you are to believe in the 10,000 person figure. And this exists throughout society. So I'd like mm -hmm. to see less of this. If you want to cover George Floyd, there really is a story about police being abusive to young males of all races. There really is a story about like Derek Chauvin had four complaints in his past. He shot a guy once. Mm -hmm. So you can actually ask, why is that guy out on the street? This isn't even necessarily racial. I mean, these complaints covered the gamut, as I understand. But what's up with these rogue officers? There are many real stories. But one of those stories is not these massacres happen hundreds of times. Yeah. There's so much of a focus on the individual image that draws the clicks that we see these unhealthy patterns that exist in society. It would be e it would be easy to give mass shooters one twentieth of the facial coverage that they get. And I think that would be a good idea. Yeah, it's a fair point. Um, and you actually mentioned this in your piece, assault, The Assault on Empiricism, that a remarkable aspect of today's culture war debates is that many massively popular positions bear no resemblance to measurable truth. And that one of them is that what you just mentioned is the volume and number of unarmed African-American men shot by the police each year. Um, what what else do you think is, is driving this, right? Why have we become so detached from empiricism? Is this a deliberate assault from those who are embodied um, um, imbued with the responsibility to be truth tellers and to funnel us the news? Is there something larger at, at play? Um, you know, what, what do you think is driving this? Well, I think when it comes to the media, there are two things. Um, one is an understanding of market metrics and the other is political bias. So, I mean, simply put, one of the things we forget about the media, I mean, I've met Tucker Carlson, you know, I used to like Don Lemon years before CNN took its turn. They're both mm -hmm. intelligent guys. And when you watch them reading through kind of a, a pre-prepared script talking about a real problem in society, you're, you're tempted to think, well, this is an intellectual process to some extent, isn't it? Mm -hmm. The reality is that news media is, is not that intellectual process. The yeah. news, news media is an ad sales vehicle to some extent. I mean, in a typical one, to a very large extent, in a typical one hour broadcast, I mean, 21 minutes will be ads for cars, penis pills, and so on down the line. And the goal of the anchor, that erudite guy in front of the camera, be that Hannity or Maddow, is to draw you in so you buy the penis pills and the, the vehicle. So we've realized, unfortunately, and this is even more true on social media, that what draws people in is kind of the scent of blood, competitive things. What's the other party doing? What's the other race doing? What's the most graphic or the most sexual image possible? Um, the New York Post on social media, I will say, has really mastered the art of doing this. Um, they keep posting these headlines. One of them the other day was something like, after a good date, I smell like fish. 
from this woman. <laughs> and all these women were like, hey, me too, if it goes well, ha, ha, ha. And it turned yeah. out to be an article about a woman that had some terrible autoimmune disease that caused this body odor. But I mean, I clicked on it as well and expected to make a joke. And I was like, oh, this is terrible. But whoever their social media guy is, is very, very good with this. So I, I think that there are almost certainly social scientists, at least at my level as methodologists, that are running the trends to see what draws people in. And that's why there's so much interracial crime stuff, so much sex scandal stuff, so on down the line. I mean, see, uh, yeah, it, it, it almost seems like a function of volume, you know, in terms of, of cable news. Maybe we don't need 24 hours. Maybe the incentives when you have to fill up 24 hours and you need to keep keep ratings high and attention uh, and keep an audience engaged in order to justify the high rates for those those advertisements. 24 hours is too much news. And then you you multiply that out amongst three or four 24 hour news channels. And this is what you get. Similarly, with online published news in that uh, when there was a daily um, uh, when there was a hard copy of a newspaper, there's only so much you could print. You had a limitation on how many stories you could print. Now, if someone can think it and someone can type it and press and press send, uh, it can get out there into the universe. And now you just have all this endless amount of nonsense. I mean, it almost feels like some news source should say, hey, we're putting a cap on stories per day. We will re we will release no more than 10 stories per day and we will require that that will uh, enforce that that will enforce some level of quality control. And hopefully that comes to, you know, a clean, a, a cleaner kind of a cleaner body of stories that they put out. I mean, I actually like to see someone even try that. I actually think that's a great business idea. I mean, there are right. some sites like just the new that they don't have to pay you. They don't, they don't even have to pay me. It's out there now. It's, in, it's on the Internet <laughs> unless you cut this out of the video. But no, I, I think that would be a pretty good model for a news network like mm -hmm. the 10 stories per day. Right. Um, I might actually, unless you object, suggest that on Twitter or academia.edu or something and see if someone wants, likes the idea. Yeah, I mean, what am I doing? I'm giving away all the good ideas on the show right now. Oh, my God. Someone's going to take this one and run with it. But, yeah, I think that's that is the anti BuzzFeed. OK, to reverse uh, uh, the reverse the corrosion, the 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 descent from the BuzzFeedification of news in the early and mid 2010s of, you know, just sticking all these freaking uh, listicles and, and um, you know, making everything a litany. OK, we have inherent scarcity or Bitcoin. You only uh, we're only going to you know, there's only going to be 21 million million Bitcoin. We're only going to print 10 stories a day. We will enforce quality via scarcity. I think that'd be an interesting I actually idea. Think, I actually think that's a great idea. That That is how the Bitcoin blockchain works, obviously. Totally. I mean, yeah. But I mean, yeah, they, some sites should do that. And we're just kind of like, good job, bro. You know, I'm like, I'm going to move on to this <laughs> in a second. But yeah, any any site that ran with 10 full length, 1500 word articles a day, by people kind of spanning that spectrum from Matt Iglesias through like Kathy Young over to Sohab Amar, Sohab Amari or something like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, like you would get a massive, massive volume of followers. I mean, you right. could argue that's just Substack, but I mean, no, it's not the same thing. Print a hard copy magazine, you know, don't totally. just publish on the prestigious internet. Anyway, I think that, that that's a great idea. But right now, unfortunately, we don't have that. Yeah. Have you ever seen the movie Anchorman 2? I've yet to. I, I, I'm running through my sequels of movies I loved. I made it to Train Spotting Two last week. Have not made it to Anchorman Two yet. Who who's still alive for Train Spotting Two? Ever apparently all of them. They they, uh, even, they they somehow all survived. You know, a little '90s smack addiction didn't really take them out. So you pick up the story twenty years later. It was okay. I, I didn't love it. I didn't hate it.
bunch of armless characters with no teeth. I mean, but like it's, it's, just, it's such a moving movie because they were destroying themselves. So it's it would yeah, be really yeah. weird to see the guys from Train Spotting at 15 years on, like, oh, I made him an insurance agent now. No, no, that's clean it. for 12. That that was kind of it. They kind of, they make Renton the uh, he's he's kind of you know they they try to spice the character up a little bit that he settled in Amsterdam that oh okay he went and became a professional and uh, chose life but oh he did it in Amsterdam because he's edgy and a former heroin addict and he's not going to choose Switzerland right um, and so you know it, they didn't it, they they definitely made the characters too stable um, you know and and it didn't kind of have that. The grittiness of the first movie, although Danny Boyle's pretty good, they they had a couple interesting bits, kind of you know, uh, commentary on on modern culture in the UK. So I won't be too hard on the movie, but yeah, it was a little little tough to translate train spotting, you know, in the train spotting characters into responsible adulthood. Yeah, I mean, so Bill spotting. I mean, that's just easy to make fun of, but it nonetheless, I'm sure it's an interesting film. But no, Anchorman Two actually just a dumb, funny movie. Give it a B plus, but mm. makes this point. Like the characters from the news network, whatever it is, like ZBC, um, get in some kind of trouble, unbelievably, and they wind up working for this for the first cable network. It's a ripoff of TNT. But the traditionally that they had been the news team that did an hour broadcast a day and for all their bullshit, took it pretty seriously. Like the sports guy would read all the papers and clip all the scores and he condensed that to 15 minutes. That'd be American mm-hmm. sports. And now they and people under them have to manage 24 hours worth of news every day. Mm-hmm. So the plot of the movie is them inventing bullshit. Like at first, they just try to fill the news time with lesser bits of real news. And they're being beating, beaten in the ratings by like the horse channel. I mean, this is, this is the kind of movie it is, you know. But I mean, then they start like one of them accidentally stumbles on a film. Mm-hmm. As I recall the movie, and they put the car chase on the air for two hours and people start watching, cheering for either the police or the criminal. And this is, of course, based on mm-hmm. real content. It's based on the OJ chase, so on. And they then move into other things like Funniest Animals of the Day is a show that's hosted by the guy who loves Lamp, if I recall. I mean, like, it's, you know, anyway, this is this is what goes on. And you see them inventing the news as we see it today. Mm -hmm. And again, I've met and liked many of these people. But if you watch the afternoon or evening, especially news shows on Fox or CNN, you see this. You see like the five or ten witty people sitting around a table talking about like the best raccoons day and so on. (laughs) And that's how you fill the 24 hours sensationalism, race war, raw sex in offices, gun violence, that sells even more than the best raccoon of the day. Yeah. So that's that's why you get so much of it. Yeah, so um, that, you know, scarcity, Wilford Riley and I, with a little help from Anchorman 2, are going to solve uh, exactly clean up American journalism single-handedly. But uh, to, to that point, and in terms of, uh, this is something that's, that I, I've has been in the back of my mind for a while now for about five six years we couldn't go more than a month or maybe two months without a heart-wrenching very incendiary controversial video of an unarmed african-american person being shot by the police right these kept on coming for about five six years then obviously 2020 George Floyd, Jacob Blake, and all, you know, where narratives seem to have run wild there. Then the Micaiah Bryant incident occurs where mm-hmm. it finally seems like it's undeniable that they jumped the shark. 
that the way that it was portrayed, that they portrayed an officer shooting that clearly was justified and in fact saved the life of a person who was about to be at the other end of a, a switchblade. Uh, and they tried off the bat to run it through the same cycle and make it this uh, another another instance of uh, of an unarmed black person, you know, hor- murdered by an oppressive and, and uncaring society and uh, and poorly trained and racist policemen, et cetera, et cetera. But then every society kind of said, "Ooh, ah, I don't know about that. This one that that was not what this is," and everyone agreed on it. Since then, since Micaiah Bryant, have can you recall one? Uh, one shooting, one story of an unarmed African American being murdered by the by the police that made national news. That was a national news story. I can't think of one. No, but you also have to remember that Joe Biden is president. I mean, and until pretty recently, he was a popular Democrat. And I'm not just being cynical here. Like you really can see trajectories and stories, uh, story trajectories and story trends. I guess is how I'd write this in a paper on either the mainstream media on the one hand or Fox and OAN on the other hand, depending on who's in office. And this dates back at least to Ronald Reagan, where for eight years there were constant hammer blows about the homeless. It's this cruel Republican president that's responsible for people sleeping outside in Tufco refrigerator boxes and so on. And when Reagan left office, he was replaced by Bush, who was GOP, but universally thought to be competent. And then sort of the empathic Bill Clinton. We saw a decline. I think it was 55 percent, something like that. I I didn't write the article, but in stories about the homeless. The problem was that the homeless population didn't decline. The homeless population, correct me if I'm wrong, audience, but has been on the upsurge for quite a while. I mean, we have an over the top problem with homelessness right now following COVID. I and mean, we have open Hoovervilles in the middle of most cities. So this ties into a very critical point. Well, two critical points. One, what's covered in the media doesn't have anything to do with what's going on in society. This is something that's so shocking that when I say it in a forum on, say, politics and media, this is the one thing, nothing racial, sexual, so on, that students will immediately latch onto and say, Doc, that that can't possibly be true. But but it is. I mean, the decisions of individual ranking producers and so on, plus the advertisers behind the scenes, determine what you see on the air and whether those patterns match patterns in society seems to occur at about the rate of random luck. So, I mean, like if we want to talk about policing, one of the things nobody disputes in that space is that 70 to 80 percent of the people shot by cops are Caucasian. They're Anglo whites, Caucasian Hispanics, so on down the line. I mean, nobody disputes that. Well, so so, uh, nobody informed disputes that. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. I mean, yeah, sure. If you just told your black buddy that at a barbershop or something, I mean, it might be an argument. No shortage of my white buddies here in LA. Yeah, no, I'm not not saying the white guy or the black guy is dumber in this situation. I'm just saying, like, sure, some kind of bar might dispute that. There's not one academic. It's like saying that there are test score gaps between ethnic groups or between the North and the South. Like, it's awkward to talk about, but nobody disputes it at all. So 70 to 80 percent of the victims of police shootings are Caucasians. They're white guys or Hispanic guys. They seem to get, depending on the year, between five and 20 percent of the coverage of police shootings. So when you see a police shooting or a police killing and it's a black guy every time, your immediate response is going to be, well, CNN, X, Fox, X, NBC wouldn't lie to me. This must be a problem that's targeting black men. The reality is that behind the scenes, the USA is only 61 percent white and a nearly proportional number of whites are killed by the police. You're just not being shown this information. In fact, when people like Roland Fryer have really unpacked this, I mean, if you read between the lines of his paper about Dallas, the people most likely to be shot by the police seem to be poor whites and recent Latino immigrants. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, because there's not really a lobby for either of those groups. 
I mean, if you shoot a tough white or Hispanic criminal, there aren't going to be people marching around outside your office with a fake coffin. So the the presentation in the media of the issue has nothing to do with the way the issue actually looks on the ground. And that's very, very common. I mean, so just to make this point quickly, there hasn't been a decline in homelessness since Reagan left office. I would assume the homeless population's probably tripled through the COVID, uh, through Bill Clinton and into the COVID era. Um, there hasn't there hasn't been a decline in black people getting shot by the cops. I mean, if anything, what's striking about that is its utter consistency. Like every single year, if you open up the Washington Post's great the counted database, I don't like the newspaper that much. I do love their data. Washington, yeah, Washington Post is the only one that has a good data set on that that specific issue. Yeah, it's excellent. Well, I mean, killed by police used to. I mean, there are a couple, but I mean, like it's yeah, a great database. But every year it's about a thousand guys that are killed by police and 200 to 300 of them are black. There's been no change. There's been no change in the numbers, the black numbers or the unarmed numbers through this entire movement. And everyone just sort of ignores that. And now with a Democrat who began as fairly popular in office, you're seeing less coverage even of the potentially unjustified shootings. So it's, again, one of those things like don't let them gaslight you. What you're saying is absolutely correct. You're not imagining it. No, I mean, it is what it is. Totally. I guess what I'm looking at is the trajectory of that coverage and why it ebbs and flows when it ebbs and flows, because I see your point about, okay, we're done with Trump and Biden's in office. However, a lot of phenomena that people attribute strictly to the Trump era, including, you know, a lot of just woke idiocy and specifically the uh, the, the police brutality issue started during the late Obama era. It was Michael Brown, uh, Eric Garner. Um, a lot of these uh, that kind of first wave of BLM kind of cause celeb incidents happened before Trump. So how do we how how do we account for that in looking at this trajectory where this thing became a big issue from 2014 to 2021? Then we have this one incident where, like, essentially everybody, even LeBron James, uh, stepped right into a rake and kind of, uh, you know, uh, criticizing the cop on social media and was even willing to take it down. And, and that, that's something that wouldn't have happened in, in regards to these other issues that might have been more edge cases. Where everyone said, OK, you know something, the media machine that's highlighting, that's using these videos to portray a certain uh, societal reality that cops are indiscriminately gunning down black people. We went too far on this one. And since then, you never hear about this anymore. Well, I, or am I, think, I imagining this? No, you're not imagining it. But I mean, I think one of my big invocations to young scholars and journalists is be multivariate. It's never just one thing. So, I mean, like the frenzy around Trayvon Martin and Michael Brown wasn't on par with the frenzy around George Floyd. So part sure. of the media coverage, no doubt, had to do with the racist, white supremacist, heterosexist, cis-sexist, sexist, post-colonialist monster Donald Trump being in office. So now that that's gone, you would I would assume you would see a tune down from at least the, those sources on the left. It does no good to point out that the police are using their guns more often under President Biden. I mean, because that really really. That really that really, I mean, like five times more, you know, we, we've just agreed the wow. data the same every year. But I mean, that that no five times in the sense of five more instances that police are not 500 percent more likely to shoot. We, we both mm-hmm. just agree this is the same data almost every year. But sure. no, I mean, that that really if you say that the rate of police violence is the same under Democratic and Republican presidents and for that matter, governors, because the actual source of the police encounter problem is young male and especially black crime in blue cities, that's not really going to do your case all that much good if you're arguing from the political left. So I do think that you probably, as with the homelessness thing, see a tune down when the parties change. But yeah, another thing, what, I mean, 
you, I, and a bunch of other people should probably take a bit of the credit here. I mean, part of this was just that every case kept being exposed as bullshit. Yeah. Like I've had reporters tell me that after I wrote hate crime hoax, they were less likely to run panic page one stories about hate crime allegations because their assumption was if this is this high profile, there's maybe a 40, 50% chance this just isn't real. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to be the guy who's getting roasted on, you know, PJ media and all these other you know, million hit conservative sites for for calling out the story. And I think that's basically good. I mean, it's not like police aren't interviewing the victim. If it's real, then the story can run. But the, these racial hysterias were kind of knocked down a bit by the writing. I mean, I did there, but Heather McDonald did. Roland Fryer did. I mean, a lot of people came out and said, look, a lot of this stuff just isn't true. Barry Weiss on kind of that center and that center right. Um, It's not just Micaiah Bryant. I mean, I think you pointed out the most obvious case. For those that aren't aware, the Micaiah Bryant situation was a case where a young black woman was running toward another woman, wielding one of those like flip out butcher's knives, this knife's like nine inches long. They'd been fighting, you know, honors about evenly. Bryant got tired of it, decided to kill somebody. Um, And a cop shoots her after a fair warning, saves a black woman's life. I think everyone involved was black, by the way. Um, And this was originally presented as just another police murder of an innocent, college bound, black future nurse, this kind of stuff. And people looking at this, seeing this, and I don't mean to be cruel, but morbidly obese, adult sized woman with this deadly weapon. I mean, you'd give up your money if this was pointed at you and you didn't have your gun out. People just said enough of this. Like we're, we're tired of this, this sort of childlike pretense. Black people aren't little kids. You have to obey the law to some extent. This is this is a bridge too far. But part of what contributed to that was all the other cases falling apart, right? I mean, like Jacob Blake, Jacob Blake, quite quite notoriously. Yeah, I mean that that's a good example. I was thinking of a couple others, but Jacob Blake, I mean, was was probably probably right. It's probably the second craziest of these. I mean, this was well, because I, I guess it's because of the reaction, right? Look at the react the reaction to Jacob Blake. There were riots. Everyone forgets the Kyle Rittenhouse incident because Wisconsin was burning down in regards to the supposed injustice of the Jacob Blake shooting, and it turns out that it was completely justified. I mean, I, I guess that's what I was looking at in terms of it. Maybe it wasn't the most egregiously misframed by the media. Others have as well. But Jesus Christ society the the activist movement treated it like george floyd yeah jacob blake i think you're right i've I've been convinced jacob blake (laughs) the thing with the jacob blake case is that this was originally presented as a real travesty of justice like this Mm -hmm. black man was at a party hosted by a couple of beautiful black sisters he was trying to break up a fight the police showed up and the original street report was just for no reason shot him if you read through black media what actually happened was that Jacob Blake was a guilty rapist. I mean, he'd been accused of at least digital rape. I haven't read through the entire like rape case template, but he sexual abuse, let's say, by his ex-girlfriend. He'd showed up at her house. He had apparently at very fingered her. He'd said, this is mine. I don't want you around any other men. Pushed her violently, like abused her. Like she was crying and called the police. And... They came. I mean, Jacob Blake, as I understand, an outstanding warrant for rape like he Mm -hmm. left that day and he showed up again at his victim's house um, on the day when unfortunately when he was shot, got into an argument with the victim and apparently said that he was taking her car with the kids in it. Like there were a number Mm -hmm. of young children in this situation. Police are called. Of course, they show up. They try to talk him down. He refuses. They physically fight with him. He beats up a cop. He shrugs off a taser. He starts running toward this vehicle. Now he's got, again, something like a 10-inch hunting knife in this vehicle, knows how to use it. As he's reaching for it at the last possible moment, the cop's yelling, he gets shot. 
I mean, that's it. Like the the rapist who went back to the victim's house, at least if you believe the legal testimony, got shot after a three minute physical battle with the police. And this was, again, presented as just another innocent, just another good brother. Let's get those graduation pictures ready. And that I that again, a lot of people, especially women, just started looking at this disgustedly. Like, are we expected to play along with this bullshit? You know, that's that that is another good example. But all of them, like the Breonna Taylor case, like I think she shouldn't have been shot. I don't I'm not a no knock warrants guy. But but it was not necessarily that you cannot draw direct causality back to police misconduct to her shooting. She was shot because her boyfriend shot at the cops and almost crippled a cop. Like people forget this. The Breonna Taylor, Breonna Taylor's name what appeared accurately on a warrant because she'd been heavily involved in her brother's drug or her ex-boyfriend's drug business. This, as far as I can tell from kind of street talk is universally known in Louisville. It's also been reported in, I live in Kentucky. It's also been reported in the Courier Journal, the major newspaper. So a number of people were named in this warrant investigating her ex-boyfriend's drug business. And he was apparently a pretty sizable drug dealer. I mean, he was nicknamed El Chapo in the city, Chop. So they <laughs> subtle, you know, keep it low key. Like I went to Tony Yeo back in the day. Um, (laughs) Anyway, my good buddy, Joey Crystal Meth. But so basically the police show up at the apartment where Taylor was, where she's sort of laying up, resting with her new boyfriend who's not involved in the drug game. But they hear this pounding on the door. And I don't know. They think from some things I've heard that it was her ex-boyfriend's men at the door. Again, I mean, this guy wasn't in the best field of business. So the new guy takes out his gun, as I understand, it's a legal firearm. And he starts bucking away at the police. He's shooting pretty well, too. I mean, he hit Mm -hmm. one of them in the leg. That guy was hospitalized for a long period of time. You know, and the police start responding after a couple verbal statements because someone's shooting at them. So they shoot back and whatever happened. I mean, some people speculated this guy was holding Taylor up as a kind of shield. I personally haven't seen any evidence of that. Despicable if so, though. But I mean, she gets shot because there's a gunfight going on that the guy on her side started. So, again, the idea the cops came for no reason, that's false. She was named on the warrant as a participant in CHOP's business. Um, they, the police fired unprovokedly. No, they didn't. Somebody shot one of them. They sent the guy to the hospital. So none of these cases ever panned out as what they were originally supposed to be. I mean, mm-hmm. and I, I think a lot of people became very aware of that, like normal white guys, middle class black guys behind the scenes were like, I don't know about this. And at, so interesting. I, I like because I think a lot of people the, these conversations do seem kind of remain siloed within different ethnic groups. I think there's a, probably an assumption from a lot of Caucasians that you know that the entirety of that that your average black male was supportive of the Black Lives Matter movement. But then I see a lot of conversations you know uh, on social media within the black community, and there seems to be a lot of skepticism of the movement, particularly from younger black males. Um, and to a certain extent that that some of it seemed to be coded around the kind of you know gender composition of the leadership of Black Lives Matter was within the African American community there more kind of diversity of opinion on BLM than than a lot of white people from an outside looking in might think. Well, I think that one of the important things here is that the craziest woke people aren't black. I mean, oh, you know, black, yeah. people, black people started from a lower base than whites in the USA, in large part because of past oppression and ethnic conflict, racial competition. But I mean, when you look at where the average black American is from, I mean, that's kind of that Christian, patriotic, deep south. We have the highest rate of military service from any group, except I think Native American Indians wow, and other. Minor- yeah, black people are like 27 percent of the military. 
Wow. So, so, I mean, that kind of like ex-athlete, maybe you're a tough guy ethos can go one of two ways. I mean, they can take you out into the streets, but it can also make you a coach. I mean, like mm-hmm. there's there's black overrepresentation in a lot of very successful fields, academics mm-hmm. or a- athletics, athletic coaching, some of the softer sciences, teaching, especially for boys, military, policing, security. But anyway, my, my point here isn't like to big up the black communities, you know, resume across a range of fields. It's just although the guys that are athletic coaches and security guards aren't buying a lot of what Patrice Calores is saying. Yeah, and this is yeah. even more true for members of other minority groups that didn't have that initial financial hobble on. Right. So Asians. Black Caribbeans, and we're now seeing about 40% of Mexicans voting GOP. Mm -hmm. A big mistake of both the left and the alt-right was assuming this, frankly, stupid demography equals destiny argument, um, where the assumption was that there's enough racism in the USA, and there's probably always going to be, that as minorities come into this country, the power of the left coalition is going to keep growing. So if you're on the right, you want to keep minorities out. And if you're on the left, you want to bring minorities in. And Mm -hmm. I think we all know behind the scenes, that's a reason for these figures you sometimes see like 55% democratic support for illegal immigration. The problem with this argument is that it's mistaken. I mean, even if you want to get into that sort of cult, cult, crit, hered debate on IQ, I mean, if you want to dig deep into this stuff, I mean, 60% of Hispanics are Caucasian. Like there's no particular reason to assume. So when, when you say that, what, could you elaborate on that? When you say that these Hispanics are Caucasian? 66% of Hispanics identify as white and white alone in census terms and DNA data mm-hmm. indicates that's roughly accurate. I mean, roughly that mm-hmm. percentage or 70% or more of Castilian or Spanish, whatever it would be, descent. I mean, so two thirds of Hispanics are white. No, I mean, you can speculate as to, we can discuss what white means uh, in the 23andMe era, if we really want to talk genomics, is that a useful term at all? But I mean, we can certainly say that a Caucasian Latino is as white for good or ill as, say, an Italian or it's certainly a Sicilian. So, I mean, I think the idea that and again, none of these, like I don't I would test I would be 40 percent black, 40 percent Celtic and 20 percent Plains Indian in genetic terms. So mm-hmm. I, I in some ways lean toward the idea of racelessness when it comes to a lot of saying a lot of the stuff is just bullshit. And you get into these questions like, are Jews white? So on. But if you want to have this conversation and if you want to apply practical population genetics to metrics like athletics or IQ, it is relevant to note that a large number of current immigrants are members of the same race as the majority population group. So a lot of these assumptions like minorities won't assimilate. A lot of members of minority groups probably won't be considered minorities in 50 years. Other minorities like Korean Americans or Nigerians outperform both whites and blacks mm-hmm. and tend to lean pretty far to the right politically, although that's not always reflected in voting patterns. Maybe I should say socially instead. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, I I think that the future of politics is going to be pretty interesting, but demographics certainly do not equal destiny. And if you were to ask the ordinary working class black guy or upper middle class Asian guy how they feel about the civil rights left, I think you'd hear some interesting, spicy things. There is one group in the USA that consistently supports the civil rights left, and that is upper middle class, college educated white women, (laughs) especially if they're failures. I mean, seriously, if you have that profile and you have an income of like thirty thousand dollars a year and you're doing some kind of semi volunteer visa work in the hood, the odds of you being off the charts as a leftist are 100 percent. But in that category overall. That that's where you see things like support for politically correct restraint of speech that literally no other group supports. I mean, that is the group that still backs Joe Biden. And we'll have more of the prevailing narrative after the break. 
And so you make a point as to the the kind of downward pressure on income in that profile, yet this is now the prevailing ethos of just about all of corporate America and every institution that does require some sort of achievement. How has this ethos penetrated those institutions, in your opinion? Well, I think that this is an interesting question. I mean, sure, it's a good rebuttal. I mean, if you say, well, woke people are just a bunch of pot smoking college failures. How does how come every corporation has a Department of Diversity? I, I mean, I would speculate that two things can be true at once. I mean, many members of what a Will Chamberlain would call the awful demographic, um, potentially affluent white female liberal are, oh, yeah. in fact, they end up on the affluent side. Yeah. Um, my, my comment was just that there seems to be even more in focus on this weird brand of politics if they don't make it. But so let me let me try to tie these two things together. Obviously, I think that people who fit this demo are even more likely to be radical if they're not very successful. But this does seem to be the one demographic that's most linked into wokeness. I think that's almost different from the question that you're asking, though, which is how is this stuff getting into mainstream society? It is different. Correct. And I think that the term I jokingly use in business sessions and so on for this is kind of the woke to bullshit pipeline. Mm -hmm. So for a have you ever read the book Bullshit Jobs? No. Bullshit Jobs argues I forget the author, but it's a funny, witty book. And it argues that probably about half of all jobs don't contribute anything to the baseline of the employer of the person with the job. Like many jobs are just completely useless. Say there's an accreditation protocol for your college. And so you need to fill out, a, you need someone to fill out paperwork indicating that your campus owns a certain number of thoroughbred horses. I'm just completely making this up to, to meet this accreditation protocol. That is a bullshit job. The person with the job every year does the work needed to meet the accreditation protocol, which is also useless. If you were to get rid of the accreditation protocol, you'd get rid of two bullshit jobs. You'd get rid, actually, probably get rid of 100 bullshit jobs, but you'd get rid of the job of the person who reviews the paperwork and makes sure this college has an appropriate number of horses. And you'd get rid of the individual at every college whose job it is to turn in this paperwork once a year. And this is not a hypothetical job, by the way. In reality, the person would be sending in diversity information or something like this or mm -hmm. Greek life information. But most colleges employ dozens of people to do basically this. Anyway, the, the whole thing with the bullshit jobs, though, for a long time, people in the business world, which is where I resided until going back to academia in 2015, 2016, thought of wokeness, by which I mean a sort of dumbed down, lower IQ version of Marxism that's focused on race and gender, i.e. so you replace the rich man as the big bad in your schema with, say, the white man or the man overall. Um, society isn't set up to benefit the rich in a corrupt fashion. It's set up to benefit whites in a corrupt fashion by oppressing minorities. And you can spin this into virtually any arena. I mean, queer theory is a version where straights fill the oppressor role, so on down the line. But wokeness was long considered to be just a weird quirk on the campus. I mean, people would openly say things like, I'm not that worried about these kids. You know, you can't get into college under legacy or affirmative action standards of admission and major in something like fat studies, and then come out and get a significant job. Um, I mean, you're gonna have to do something like work in an open hiring space, like a sales floor and ads or something like that for a couple of years, learn what the real world is like, get a real degree or certificate. And by that point, this, this will be shaken out of you. And that turned out not to be the case at all. Brutally, um, brutally incorrect. Yes, nice. that it was entirely wrong. What actually happened was that the people who got degrees in sociology, the studies field, so on, began creating consultancies, one, 
and two, pressuring corporations to create departments that were focused on the things they'd studied, like DEI, the whole alphabet soup, DEI, ESG, SEL, HR, all the stuff that's now growing in the corporate world comes out of this sector. So in fact, if you major in black studies and you graduate from a decent school, a lower Ivy, this would certainly be true for sociology, psych, so on, just the bachelors, you don't in fact go work at a Starbucks for a while and then decide on graduate school or another career. You can go work in DEI, HR, whatever down the line for a Fortune 500 corporation. Mm-hmm. So I mean, I think I haven't exactly given a mechanism, but that's that's what happened. For whatever reason, I think the advice of legal, which initially assumed this would be pretty harmless, but for whatever reason, this stuff became very entrenched in corporate America. So you now have a pipeline for woke college kids into the business world, into woke fields. And these have become incredibly controlling in the biggest companies. That's how you you have senior management and you have an older generation that has ascended, was already in power before this stuff came along. That's completely buckling to it which is the most fascinating thing from my perspective. Well, it's I think it's because they don't know that it's bullshit. Like, oh, I don't know. You don't think a 63-year-old CEO know, knows that putting your fucking pronouns in your bio is bullshit? Every, you have to see it, Wilford. I get emails from the stuffiest law firms on earth. They got pronouns in their bio. This stuff is everywhere. Yeah, no, it's. I think that... What am I trying to say here? I think that there is an element of people actually taking this more seriously than it deserves because of the traditional American respect for experts. So this is actually one of the things that you constantly hear when you engage with wokeness. If you say something like biological sex is extraordinarily simple to define. I I bred pit bulls as a young man or teddy bear hamsters. Both these things are true for my group of friends. Uh, It's very obvious what this is. What you're saying is just idiotic. I've seen it empirically demonstrated to be wrong hundreds of times. Um, the response will invariably be, why are you saying something that all of the experts are lined up against? Do you think that you know more about the nature of sex and gender than the American Association of Pediatrics? God. And it actually, it requires a lot of understanding. This is one of the focuses of my next book, actually. It requires a lot of understanding of the modern scene of the kind that the CEO of, say, a dental services company might not have to understand why this is bullshit. Like to understand that this is just bullshit. Um, like, let's talk about one of the milder things, like diversity training. Diversity training, which in practice consists mostly of teaching your executives about the stereotypical attributes of different groups, um, is completely useless. There's a famous article in Harvard Business Review 2014. I've shot a couple of emails um, to the guy who wrote it. I'd have to look and see whether there was a response. But I mean, they looked at all these diversity training programs and they found that none of them added anything to bottom line at all. None of them had any positive effect. Uh, people or just, just the, the trope that diversity is our strength or that we, we will do better with diversity. I mean, is such like in, you know, you want to talk about multivariate versus univariate. I mean, sometimes, but why, <laughs> how on earth could you make, could you drag that out to assume that it is true in all cases? Yeah. I mean, it, and also just the, 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 uh, the juvenile sheen that this puts on everything that you need some sort of bureaucratic chaining process for people to know to, you know, to not try not to have a blind spot as to the diversity of the background or the demography of the people involved in the company. It's fucking nuts. Yeah, no, I mean, but I I think we, we agree. So the article found that diversity training didn't accomplish anything. And I mean, if, if you read the article and read the response papers and certainly read between the lines, I mean, you, you realize why 
like any idiot could hire 11% blacks who are reasonably well qualified into a company. That's all you need to do to get diversity. So like fire the whole department, you know, have, have a junior <laughs> vice president do that once a year. I mean, so first that's the most basic point and then tell people not to be racist. Everything on top of that is just useless. So yeah. a seminar that explains the traditional stereotypical idea of black learning style is only going to be valuable one, if there is a black learning style, which they're not, there's not, I mean, what that means to me is that we're still 7% or whatever behind on the tests. I mean, it just seems to be like it takes longer to process information if you read what this is supposed to be, you know, more circular process of thinking. Those, those aren't strengths. So first you have to assume this is a real thing instead of just we need to spend more time hitting the books. And second, for the, the seminar, the training to be useful, you'd have to assume that every non-Black executive should be willing to change what they do to accommodate this, which is, again, crazy. So there's an obvious reason why this doesn't work. But anyway, the point of the article is just that it doesn't work. My point, though, is something more background. If you're a CEO looking at some of this, looking at what are now considered entire fields like HR or DEI, I don't think you're going to be immediately aware that it's mostly just crap, that concepts like stereotype threat or microaggression aren't supported by any good research. Like you might think it. You might think it in the back of your mind, like it's just some bullshit, but it's it's going to be fairly difficult for you to say that. And again, part of the, what I'm trying to do in my next book is explain the process, like the process that created this bullshit field is that in the 60s and 70s, a specific thing happened. I mean, you saw the combination of traditional legacy programs, which had long been letting in idiots with affirmative action programs female-focused programs, so on, bringing in still more students that were not at all ready for the campus, especially Blacks at the time, Black Americans. And you saw the creation of these fields, um, the different studies, so on, designed to house these underprepared students. And a great many of the concepts we're talking today about, DEI and so on, came out of this period in this set of ideas. So when you hear, quote-unquote, experts in this field, you have to realize these fields, you have to realize that almost everyone has an extraordinarily strong political bias toward the left side. I mean, something like 18% of social science professors right now openly identify as communists or Marxists. It's something like 5% are Republicans. Um, so you, you have to question how intelligent are the people that were getting in these fields. And when you go through all of this, you realize, yes, my initial common sense impulse was probably correct. But unless you're prepared to do that, it can be kind of intimidating to have a department that was created by your predecessor saying, well, we want to apply the best science. Who are you to oppose that? Yeah, but do people even this microaggressions, I think, is a good playing field for this because you're, I, I'm just not seeing anyone uh, of any sentience who heard um, microaggressions the first time it, it left the campus, you know, in 2012 to 2014, sometime around there and thought, wait a second, uh, who are these children who are whining? This is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Microaggressions, you don't get to feel good about everything all the time. Something might f make you feel less than great about it. And in the words of Bill Maher, if it's a microaggression, doesn't it make you micro pissed? So and, and I think the point that you harp on is that it's that they don't 
it's a it's a it's a reputational risk and it's a public relations risk in that it's become anathema or it's become taboo or risky to oppose these things whereby in 2007 if someone in hr or an employee kind of mentioned an issue around microaggressions you'd laugh them out of the room if not fire them but you can't do that any longer that's not that's no longer how it works not that we're going to be able to solve why that is on, on, on this chat right now but i'm sure that's one that we you know the type of question that you and i are trying to get get to the bottom of constantly but yeah i just I, i'm still shocked that these people it, you know many of them were already in their 50s whether the gen x or baby late baby boomers were in the c-suites of these uh, of these corporations and did not summarily reject this even if they were somewhat intimidated reputationally but I guess we'll have to see where that where, where you know where that trajectory takes us in terms of trajectory. Also, you know, one topic that you tweeted out about um, a couple weeks, you know, uh, I think is actually a few days ago um, that I found interesting in trying to think that is there any self corrective mechanism in, to, in society for some of this stuff? Um, someone else tweeted out about uh, a childhood gender transition and that mentioned that eight years from now, sixty minutes will be doing pieces on the transition craze of the twenty twenties, and this will be looked upon in retrospect as ho in horror. Um, you responded, I 200% guarantee this and have no problem saying it in public. And you believe that this is going, that, that there is going to be self-correcting action in society that people will realize that this is all insane and, and veer away from it and, uh, and look back on it in shame and horror. Um, how secure are you that that's actually going to happen? That this is not, not now so entrenched and that the, the moral calculus is so now in favor of people um, indulging this and supporting this and that the, that the ease with which you can paint someone as a bigot or reactionary or fascist for opposing it, that those incentives are now so powerful that society is not going to be able to come back from this. This is just going to keep on marching forward. Um, I don't think the detransitioners and like the gen the GC, the gender critical feminists are going to let that happen. I mean, so like you're seeing a weird alliance against this kind of stuff where you've got guys like Matt Walsh on the one side, like bearded lumberjack looking conservative dudes. And then you have people like happy little turf on Twitter that are like feminist ex party girls that are like opposing this full on riot girl style, Eva Karlova and so on down the line. I mean, uh, I think to a certain extent. So when we were talking about how corporations could possibly fall for this stuff, um, I think it got through the door pretty incrementally. It seemed reasonable to have one person that would focus on diversity hiring and then like topsy, it just grew. But I mean, how can it stay? How can can I ask you one question yeah, sure. there in terms of that? But if you're saying it's incremental, look at the trajectory of it. Let's call it how much it grew from. Let's even call it 2005 to 2012 versus 2012 to 2019. One phase. I mean, it, it, it's just fractional, minuscule. The march and progression of this um, from let's call it the, the 2000s to the pre-Great Awakening era to the Great Awakening era. I, I see this more as just a tidal wave that washed over society beginning in about 2013. Well, I, I think a simple way of looking at this would be that you're seeing exponential annual growth. I mean, like if you if you it invest in the to be. yeah, but if you invest in the market, like you know what that is. I mean, so two times two is only four, and four times four is only sixteen. But when you get into sixteen times sixteen, then you're getting into massive increases in the amount of something that you see. 
And so the originally invisible thing, the four staffers at a Fortune 500 becomes very visible because you have 244 staffers or whatever the figure would be. I mean, I think that's probably something close to what happened. Zach Goldberg, who's done a lot of good writing about this, uh, ties the great awakening, as he calls it, to the racial reckoning. He may have coined both terms, actually. But I mean, in 2012, 2013, that's when you saw Trayvon Martin. So the entire Black Lives Matter thing, like even with a black president, we see this genocide against black people was certainly one of the big levers that was seized on to make this this false argument. Like we haven't made substantial progress in the 60s and we need to bring in more people into this business that can work on handling different aspects of this. So, I mean, if you have a DEI focused HR office, I mean, you might have someone focused on Title IX issues. You might have someone focused on relationships with legal, which is a big issue with this stuff. You might have some many people focused on diversity hiring, minority outreach, different types of marketing, so on down the line. Uh, I don't know if I would say this is one of the biggest problems in society, but it's definitely a damn real issue if you're involved in business. And it's become more and more noticeable each of these years. But that's just because of the pace of increase. Um, And I think but in terms of what I was saying, I think that there are two techniques that are really used by people in these roles. The first is to argue that they come from legitimate scientific disciplines. And what they're saying is science that CEOs from the older generation wouldn't understand. This is used in the gender space all of the time. So it's like microaggressions. There are a couple of papers that purport to show that asking someone about background or home country, for example, upsets them and can, can slow down work product in a business. Now, there are dozens of other responses that show that's probably not true. I posted one to Twitter today. But if you are someone making this argument, you would say, well, do you come out of the field of DEI focused HR like I do? Are you questioning my very serious degree? Now, again, I personally think that almost anyone could do a lot of these jobs. Like, I think there are a lot of predictors of how well you do in the workplace. One of them is IQ. One of them is aggression. And way down the road, you get to credential. Like, it it sounds absurd to me that the skills that I learned as a college professor, as a coach, so on down the line, wouldn't be effective as an executive in a whole range of businesses. So, I mean, I I don't think this is true, but it's pretty effective. Like, are you questioning my science? These are the two microaggression papers. The second technique that's used is working with legal, where people will say, you know, yeah, people may be a little oversensitive, but there really are issues of genocide in our society or whatever, anti-trans discrimination in our society. And if we shy away from this as a company, we're going to get picketed. We're going to get sued. So we are saving your ass. We are preventing you from having these terrible things happen. So generally, the the vice president of DEI will talk, for example, with the the corporate counsel. That that would probably also be a C-suite title. And something would be worked out in terms of what the firm is going to do as Riot's approach to Pride Month or whatever. And that's how you see just like crazy shit, like Halliburton and the U.S. Marines doing Pride ads. Oh my God. Every one of these bullets that hits you will be a different color. <laughs> I actually made fun of this on uh, Twitter where I said that it was just creepy to see the CIA and the NSA doing Pride ads. Like you can't imagine our diversity. No. Uh, how about the, the the Marines? Their Pride ad was kind of a, a take on Full Mat the Full Metal Jacket fan uh, cover art, the poster art for the movie Full Metal Jacket, except, except with a rainbow flag bu- bullets. Rainbow flag bullets. This is insanity. Yeah, I mean, and again, like the I once when I was in high school, excuse the language, but I mean, I asked one of my good buddies what he thought about gay no people. No worries about like, that. No, but he was like. You know, if you like to suck cocks, it ain't my problem. And that's that's always been kind of my attitude. Like, I don't care at all about people's sexuality. I support gay marriage. 
I mean, so I, I think when you look at some of this stuff, like, yeah, it's a little ridiculous, but it, as at a baseline, it wouldn't be an issue. The problem is that everyone's doing it. They're not doing it voluntarily, and they're doing it because of the invasive presence of this negative Marxist ideology, and that really is a problem. Correct. Yeah, I mean, like, if you just you like to sleep with dudes, okay, more women sure. for me. Like, who cares? It's that, yeah, it, just, that, it seems like it, when it when it seems to be cycled through every corporate marketing program in America, it seems like there's something else going on. And that's and what's, what's turning a, a lot of people off. Yeah. And and it's, wonder, also, it's also so blatantly amoral. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm yeah. you know, like a competitive guy. I come from the business world myself. Like, I don't I'm not the most poster boy for ethics. But I mean, like when you see this stuff where it's like BMW Europe, everything's rainbow, pretty gayed up. Then it's like BMW USA. They even inflicted this on the poor Africans now that Africa's stabilizing, like BMW <laughs> Nigeria. And then you see like BMW Saudi Arabia, and they're none of those games no, at all. Not having they, it buy, there. they buy a lot of those cars over there. It's just yeah. like straight up, like the American Saudi flag or whatever, and like a nice car. So I mean it's you understand that to a certain extent this is being done only because people are tolerating it, only where people are tolerating yeah. it. And it's being done as a money seeking, lawsuit avoiding virtue signal. And that's that's what's irritating. Yeah. And I just the way I put it, you know, I, I don't know if you're familiar with the a company, a fashion company Revolve, but Revolve is known for, you know, having this marketing machine around fashion, you know, Instagram models and fashion influencers. And they run this machine, this marketing machine, you know, this Revolve marketing machine. And it's like, OK, we're inserting society, you know, serious societal issues through the Revolve marketing machine. That's pretty much what we're doing. It's, it's very just eerie. Um, so circling all the way back to the gun issue that we started this conversation on um, to finish up with so the only legislation or at least only federal legislation that has come out of the the recent uh conversation in in response to the two big shootings was a senate bill that had that does include some of the stuff we touched on in terms of red flag laws um and you know some it, at least limitations age based on access to high capacity firearms things of that nature um what do you think of the bill um is it to, you know, is it just another uh, unnecessary step toward in, in the direction of safetyism bureaucracy that's really not going to solve any problems or, you know, even just the the overtures towards red flag laws? Could it fill the space or at least address the issue that I think we we found some common ground on in terms of identifying people who truly do pose a threat and putting some specific restrictions on their access to firearms? And I, I think this is pretty good bill that's to the left yeah, of me same. and won't do much of anything i mean yeah i like i think that it, you have to do something mm -hmm. as a leader you know the the red the red flags for these troubled young men under 21 or 25 or whatever they settle on that's a good idea the question is yeah. because i mean like when you say isn't that a risk to my guns i mean i don't want to be glib but i'm almost 40 I, like if you're buying an ar at 21 I don't necessarily mind that there is a process that's enhanced enough that they look at your juvie record. I mean, that just makes mm -hmm. common sense. You only had two years to rack up an adult record. Totally. So I, I think that one might prevent some mass shootings. One thing they're doing in there is closing the quote unquote boyfriend loophole, where if you actually get a felony above the lowest level DV charge, meaning you beat the crap out of a woman in most cases, it generally, if you were a husband and you did that, you wouldn't be able to own guns for at least a period of time. But if you weren't married and you did that to your baby mama, like Jacob Blake would have been able to buy a gun. Um, so I, I don't have a problem with that. I think that those two things and some of the other things like mental health spending targeted at men will probably have some positive impact. 
The reality, though, is that we need to be honest about this topic. Again, the 80% majority of gun violence is gang violence involving young men, white, black, and Hispanic, shooting each other with $200 guns. Um, and more than half of those men are just black, not discounting the violence from the Caucasian in Chicago, traditionally Irish and Italian, the Hispanic thugs. But I mean, again, 56% of murders last year were black guys. So there's a very specific demo here. Like it's poor, fatherless men under 25, half black. Boom. Just described it. So when you talk about we're not supposed to profile, we're not supposed to analyze who does certain things. I just in a sentence described who does this. Now, mm-hmm. what can we do to move handguns away from those guys? And that's going to be tough. And by the way, the interesting thing is if you actually did that, because, again, probably what, 66 percent of the people in the group I just mentioned would be black or Hispanic. If you actually tried to do this, you'd be accused of racism just off bat. I mean, any policy that would really move the gun stores out of those areas and whatever was done. I mean, you would see an immediate backlash like they're trying to disarm our small businessman. The white man's coming for our weapons. So when you say diversity can be a strength or a weakness here, it's a weakness. Because policies that would be non-controversial in many countries, just as voter ideas, become very controversial in the USA because of our history of large races and classes and even regions, the North and the South, killing each other. Mm-hmm. So it's the, the issue is not, does it make sense to use an idea? It's will Hispanics be disenfranchised by the use of idea or something? And yeah. same problem. Where America, America's kind of one of one. Our, our unique history and heritage make, you know, some solutions that make sense for some other countries just impractical or uh, a little more difficult to implement out here. Um, Wilfred, this was fantastic. Good I want to uh, absolutely appreciate you coming on today. There are so many topics that, you know, you, uh, uh, much like myself and and I think probably in the people that we like to interact with and seek out, you know, no, we, we don't mind spray, spraying a little machine gun fire and hitting all the targets. And okay. just there's so much there's so much to synthesize in, you know, in society these days, um, politically, policy wise, sociologically. And you do a great job at all of it. Um, so appreciate you coming on today. And uh, why don't you tell everybody uh, where they can find you on the Internet? Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty easy to find. I mean, my usual recommendation is just Google Wilfred Riley. That's W-I-L-F-R-E-D-R-E-I-L-L-Y. You'll find my Twitter website, Facebook, books. I mean, both books were international bestsellers, so they're pretty easy to find on Amazon and so on. But uh, awesome. yeah, check if you're interested, check me out. I'll, I'm at the point where I'll still engage with you online, all that kind of thing. So get in touch. Love it. And uh, also, Will WillDubB630 on, twi- on Twitter, W-I-L underscore D-A underscore Beast630. Does great work there. Um, Wilford, thank you once again. This is The Prevailing Narrative. I am Matt Belinsky. Once again, you can listen and subscribe to The Prevailing Narrative on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening right now. Make sure to follow me on my socials at Matt Belinsky, M-A-T-T-B-I-L-I-N-S-K-Y. The Prevailing Narrative is a Cavalry Audio production in association with iHeartRadio. Produced by Brandon Morgan, executive produced by Dana Brunetti and Keegan Rosenberger. For Cavalry Audio, I'm Matt Belinsky. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh. The joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.